St. Augustine of Canterbury Church presents Sunday Homilies with Father Samuel Keyes. For more information and a calendar of upcoming events, please visit staugustineofcanterbury.org. That's staugustineofcanterbury.org. Thank you for listening. Who is the sinner? That seems to be the question on everyone's lips in this well, very long passage from John's Gospel. The disciples, always ready to say what everyone else is thinking, use a blind man as an object lesson. Who sinned, they asked? The man himself or his parents? Neither, says Jesus, with a rather obvious subtext. You're missing the point. Whether or not the disciples get it, John goes on to show just how much everyone else seems to have the same problem. If the disciples wanted to know who sinned to cause the blindness, the Pharisees want to know, in a weird sort of reversal, who sinned to heal it. Or rather, how, could it, how it could be possible for an obviously sinful man to heal something that was so obviously caused by sin. Hence, we get this long kind of back and forth. It's, it's actually quite amusing. What's going on here? Most of us probably find that language of sinners and guilt here a little bit strange, and this is for both good and bad reasons. One good reason is that we're Catholics who go to confession and we're used to reciting penitential prayers at every Mass, reminding us that we are all, every one of us, sinners in need of mercy. As such, we're probably intuitively opposed to that Pharisaic stance, which wants to label in a definitive way, you know, some people as sinners and others as righteous. One bad reason, maybe, is that despite the knowledge of universal sinfulness, we do not like to believe that our sins actually affect us. We prefer to think of sin purely in terms of, of disobedience, not in terms of physical and social consequences. Sinning may hurt my relationship with God, but it's unlikely to change anything beyond that. I say this is bad, but there, there is some good in it. Unlike the disciples and the Pharisees, we are, we're unlikely to look at someone's pain or disability and immediately chalk it up to their sins or their parents' sins. The medical science is a great help in this regard because it makes us aware of the different kinds of corruption that are beyond our control. But we can take this too far by assuming that everything is reducible to physical causality. No doubt this is convenient because it means we can never be blamed for anything. But we then fall into a kind of spiritual escapism where we never really have to deal with sin on anything but a theoretical basis. Jesus gives us no easy way out here in John. He does insist that the man's blindness is not his fault or his parents' fault, but the reason he gives is maybe even a bit more disturbing. He says the man was born blind so that the works of God might be made manifest. What could that possibly mean? On the surface, it suggests that God made the man blind so that later God could heal him. That's why I call it disturbing, because it seems to make God the source of sickness. And is God the source? 
Well, is God the source of all things? Certainly, Scripture wants to say that he is. In one striking line, God says to the prophet Isaiah, I form light and create darkness. I make wheel and create woe. I am the Lord who do all these things. That emphasis on the incomparable power of God was important for Isaiah as a statement of God's oneness. Other religions prefer to separate sources, one divine being as the source of good, another of evil, one of light, another of darkness, and so on. Not a few Christians find themselves in this same category, sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident, by imagining an Old Testament God full of wrath and judgment and a New Testament God full of love and mercy. But the Bible does not leave us that option. There is only the one God, utterly transcendent, who is the source of all things. Does this really mean, though, that God is directly the source of the man's blindness? There's another stream running through scripture and tradition which speaks of human sin and the, the way that humanity, the apex of creation, caused corruption to enter nature itself. In that stream, God is not the source of sin and evil. We are. Or more properly, our free will is. And so God is the source on one level in that he created us and gave us free will, but on another level, evil is not something that he made, but something that he allowed as a consequence of how he created us in freedom. This still doesn't really answer the question about the man born blind. What is the reason for his blindness? What is the cause? What we have to say, to be consistent, is that morally speaking, there is no reason. There can be no reason for evil and corruption because evil and corruption is by nature irrational. It is not reasonable. It is not reasonable that a man should be born blind through no fault of his own. It is not reasonable that bad things should happen to good people. This is what it means to say that we live in a world of sin. It means that despite that, that modern Christian platitude that everything happens for a reason, many things happen for no reason at all because that is the nature of evil. Evil is a disruption of the rational order of things and we have to name it for what it is. But, and this is a crucial but, God can create out of nothing. God can impose rationality where there is no rationality. God can transform chaotic death and irrational destruction into good. And so Jesus can say, without making God the source of evil, that there is a reason for the man's blindness where in a world ruled by sin, there would be none. The reason is the glory of God. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? It's much easier to go around insisting that everything happens for a reason. That may seem an easy comfort to those on the outside, but it always seems to ring false to those nearest to loss and tragedy. As much as Jesus prayed, thy will be done in the garden, he still cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God's answer to him and to all of us must first be silence. Because we have to look the darkness of evil in the face and acknowledge its unreason, its utter lack of why. Only then does God answer with the creative reason which makes loss into meaning, which makes sickness into the opportunity for a yet more beautiful healing. 
if we understand this, if we understand the mysterious nature of God's response to evil, maybe we can better understand what Jesus was about in his early ministry, in his earthly ministry, excuse me, of healing. You know, we read these stories and, and so much of the time we get this picture of Jesus just kind of walking around fixing everybody's problems. And so then we wonder, why doesn't God just come and fix our problems? Why doesn't God heal that family members who's sick? Why, why doesn't Jesus heal me? Why doesn't Jesus replace the entire government of California with reasonable people? But as we see in today's story, Jesus's healing isn't a walk in the park. This poor guy, I mean, this poor recipient of, of his healing, he is dragged all over the place and cross-examined. It wasn't just a simple fix. And anyway, the point wasn't to fix things, it was to show God's glory. Fixing things in people with free will is never as straightforward as we would like it to be. You see, God does want to heal us, but that healing is not a quick fix. It's not a painless twirl of the wand in which everything suddenly becomes okay. Like any real healing, it involves pain and itching and questions and trust in a doctor who seems so often to be absent. And so when St. Paul instructs us to walk as children of the light, what he means is that is to live with the knowledge that God is in charge even when it appears that the darkness is winning, even more when it appears that the darkness is winning. To believe that God is in charge is to say something radical like Jesus does, to say that an inexplicable and irrational problem can have a purpose because God is creative enough to give it one. To walk as children of the light is to enter this strange hospital of sinners known as the church, trusting that our doctor can transform even our most horrible wounds into the glorious and life-giving scars of his passion. We will never be without those scars, just as he will never be without his, but they will be wonderful like his. Have you ever noticed that verse from Psalm 23? So today in the, um, the lectionary, we, we usually sing the gradual, but the uh, psalm appointed is actually Psalm 23. And there's that verse, it's a familiar psalm. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. I know that I at least usually gloss over it because it's, it's hard to see why enemies should have anything to do with this wonderful banquet of divine goodness at the end of that psalm apart from pure spitefulness. But this is important. In the heavenly banquet, our enemies are no longer an occasion for fear or anger or even gloating. They are an occasion for deeper joy. We all, we all have enemies, don't we? Maybe we don't all have a personal nemesis out to get us, though maybe some of us do. For many of us, the enemy is maybe Myself, my own ego or my own scarred past, an old relationship, a financial collapse, a, a looming sickness, an unexplained death. Maybe the enemy is loneliness and hurt. Maybe it's working too much or too little. Maybe it's that person who just always seems to get on my nerves. And you know, we just want God to fix it, to get rid of the enemies, to vanquish them. But the real healing is harder because it means letting them be redefined, given purpose and meaning. It means 
seeing in darkness the coming dawn, and saying with the confidence of David in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 